Welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. As always, this is James, kicking off the episode with three of the biggest stories the Empire Center has been following these past few weeks. We'll start with a note on jobs. New York has added private sector jobs in all but three of the 38 months since the COVID-19 outbreak of March 2020. But the Empire State remains below its pre-pandemic employment level and continues to trail the national recovery. On a seasonally adjusted basis, private sector employment in New York totaled 8.26 million jobs as of June, according to the latest State Labor Department report. Now, this figure is about 1% short of the record 8.34 million jobs counted in February 2020, the month before the start of the pandemic. By contrast, private employment in the U.S. as a whole is now nearly 3% above that, that pre-pandemic level. As Medicaid downsizes in the aftermath of the coronavirus pandemic, reporting by New York and other states is missing data on an important group, outgoing enrollees who successfully made the switch to job-based insurance. Now that shift should be welcomed because greater use of commercial insurance means lower costs for taxpayers, more choice for consumers, and better reimbursement for caregivers. Yet the state's first monthly report on this Medicaid unwinding process that was issued last week did not track the flow to employer-sponsored insurance. And finally, the Times Union recently broke the news that New York State has contracted with two Texas companies for $800 million in temporary housing to help with New York City's ongoing influx of undocumented migrants from the southern border. The Hochul administration's response to the migrant emergency is already raising big questions surrounded by bigger dollar signs specifically surrounding the selection of these companies, which came one week after one of the companies, Garner Environmental Services, contributed the calendar year maximum to Governor Kathy Hochul's campaign. For more on these stories, visit the Empire Center blog. And now I'll hand it over to Debbie with a great interview with Irshad Manji. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Messages of Necessity. This is the podcast of the Empire Center for Public Policy based in Albany, New York. And today I'm joined by the founder of something called Moral Courage College, already intriguing, um, and author of this fabulous book that I read a few years ago, Don't Label Me, um, and that I refer a lot of people to because don't label me, um, Urshad <laughs> Manji. Thank you for joining us today, Urshad. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a podcast for people who live in New York. And you live in New York City. I do. I live in the gorgeous borough of Brooklyn. I used to live in Manhattan until I made the mistake, and I acknowledge it's a mistake, of moving to Los Angeles. And then after that, moving to Hawaii. And you know what? New York City beckoned, even as I was you know, slumming it on the beaches of Hawaii. And when I came back, it was Brooklyn, baby. The new Manhattan. Wow. Well, what do you love about Brooklyn? What is there not to love about yeah. Brooklyn? Truly. <laughs> I mean, um, first of all, let me tell you what I love about New York. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that bonds us, right, Debbie, is that we both grew up in Canada. That's right. And we love, you know, the 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 country that that uh took us and our parents in for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That said, every time I would come to New York City. I could literally feel a different energy. 
just being outside of the airport waiting for, at that time, a taxi cab. Yeah. I could feel the energy, which I never felt, at least not to that level, in any other city around the world. And I have been and remain a world traveler. So there was truly something about this town that was calling my name anyway. And then when I had the opportunity to uh, move here, um, even if it was just for a few months, as a visiting uh, professor at New York University, I, of course, snapped up that opportunity. Well, one semester turned into almost 10 years of teaching at NYU. And uh, when I came back to the great uh, city of New York from Hawaii, uh, Brooklyn, there is, again, something raw um, yet still um, very inviting about the place. Um, I love my neighborhood. It's a 10-minute walk to Barclays Center one side and 10-minute walk to Prospect Park on the other side. And I love my neighbors. Um, you know, people, yes, tend to be chock-a-block liberal. And on many issues, I myself am liberal. But on many issues, I'm conservative. And when I talk to my neighbors about that, I can honestly tell you, nobody cringes their nose. In fact, many times they're grateful to have the opportunity to show a more nuanced side of themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, when we take the time to create uh, an environment in which people are permitted to be all that they are and not just some of what they are, um, you'll find that uh, they breathe at least a metaphorical sigh of relief, if not a literal one. Yeah. Um, wow, there's so much for us to unpack there. But yes, this idea of neighborhood, neighbor, authenticity with your neighbors, being yeah. willing to be a little vulnerable by sharing something and finding out that, hey, you know what? It's a very welcoming place. Um, so I actually have never been to Brooklyn. I'm thinking I really need to go now just to go see it. Um, but well, you know where you can stay, Debbie. I know where I can stay. I'm going to give you a call. Um, so I also have with me, and this is funny because I have my chai yes. <laughs> with me for our conversation. And I know you have chai too, but why, what you started something called chai chats. That's right. What so, are these? Um, what are these? These yeah. are monthly public events in which I invite all and sundry to come engage in the most honest conversation with me about what's going on in our world today. And uh, in that chai chat, the attendees and I uh, talked about the how of creating uh, constructive conversations out of contentious issues, um, which I think we might get into a little yeah. bit today. Yeah. But, the, but the chai aspect yeah. of it Yes. is important because, you know, these are the kinds of conversations that, quote, spice up our lives, right? Why do they spice up our lives? Because it's not the same old, same old. Mm -hmm. Not only are you, don't, do you not have to toe any orthodoxy in the chai chats, I beg you not to, you know, like, let it all hang out. Be the free spirit that I know you are in the deep recesses of your heart. So surprise all of us mm -hmm. with your point of view on something that you might be too afraid to talk about uh, outside of a chai chat.
I love how you are bringing this to a warm and so so chai for me is also a very warm and comforting you know uh, beverage and yeah. uh, there is a spice to it but there's also this comfort to it yeah the sweet you're, you're encouraging us ring so I mean there's a lot of talk about how hyperpolarized the country is and I said to you just before we started recording the conversation it's like you hear these two narratives we are so hyperpolarized we can't talk to one another and then the other is we are not nearly as divided as our politicians want us to think we are. Yep. Yep. And my sense is both are both, both are true and both are also mm -hmm. not true. What do you think? I think both are true. Um, let me take the first part of that equation. Yeah. We're not as polarized as certainly, um, you know, media would want to have us believe. And I believe that is absolutely true. Um, the story that I just told you about how frankly easy it is for me to have um, you know, complex conversations with my otherwise very liberal uh, Brooklyn neighbors. The reason um, it seems as if we are so far apart is that, Debbie, we're not raised anymore in this society to know how to engage with one mm -hmm. another mm -hmm. in ways that are at one and the same time warm and spicy, mm -hmm. you know? Um, these are skills that people need to be taught. Yes. And yes. some of the skills that I'm talking about are, um, for example, cognitive empathy. Now mm. that is very different from emotional empathy. Mm -hmm. Emotional empathy translates into, oh, you're telling me you're victimized? Okay, then I'm just gonna have to agree with you out of guilt. Otherwise I'm a jerk. That is emotional empathy. Cognitive empathy means, I want to understand where you're coming from. And that doesn't uh, uh, oblige me to agree with you, but I'm interested to know um, what experiences you've had, how you interpret the same world that I inhabit. And if I can understand that, I can at least appreciate, even though we disagree, you have a valid reason for taking your point of view, that you're not crazy, you're not evil, and you're not ignorant. And so if we can develop cognitive empathy, remember, doesn't mandate us to agree. All it does is it stops us from immediately rejecting one another and opens up the uh, minds and hearts and opportunities to just hear one another out. I... And that's a skill. That is a skill. And you know what? It's a skill that I, as, as you were talking, I realized now I understand why one of the favorite classes I ever took is my favorite class. It was a philosophy class. And what the, the teacher had us do was we had to, we had to present the best argument mm -hmm. for the different positions, some of which were contradictory, right? right? But the whole skill set of really understanding what is the best argument, not the worst, not the, mm -hmm. the easiest to dismiss, but what is the best argument for this this position. And right. you know what? That's a lot tougher to just dismiss, right? They're real smart people that buy into these positions for a reason. Right. So, but co cognitive empathy is something that's a label that 
don't label me, but I will yeah. use that label. That's right. That's right. <laughs> label, the, you can label ideas, right? you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And here, and I, I just want to clarify something here. Like yeah. I love the fact that you learned this in your philosophy class, mm -hmm. uh, as distinct, say from your psychology class, mm. but you could have easily learned it in your psychology class too. The point is that this idea of cognitive empathy is not restricted to one kind of slice of life. If you can develop this skill, it will improve your relationships in politics, in policy making, at home, with your yeah. spouse or partner, yeah. with your children, um, if you're part of a religious congregation within that congregation. In other words, on a condo board, anywhere where human beings collaborate, rather congregate, and ego gets in the way of healthy collaboration. So truly, these are life skills. Mm -hmm. Now, politicians, I yes. will just add this much more. Yes. People always say to me, oh, Irshad, you've, you, you've got to go to the state assembly or to Congress and teach this. And I say to them, let's just think about this for a second. Do you honestly believe that politicians have any incentive to learn these skills? Most politicians will take the easy way out and would rather stay lazy and whip up their bases in order to win the next election, right? We, it is we who vote, who need to hold not just our politicians to account for this laziness, but also who need to hold ourselves to account, Debbie, for not modeling to our own kids, to our own families, what we then have the gall to demand of our politicians. Yeah. Uh -uh. Yeah. Look in yeah. the mirror, folks. Yeah. Yeah. See if you're part of the solution before demanding that of anybody else. This is really um, perfect transition because I want to ask you about the moral courage part. Mm. Right of looking at looking at yourself in the mirror and asking whether you're part of the solution, mm -hmm. and a lot of people that I know in New York feel like it's a one-sided place, or they their their impression is it's a one-sided place. Um, politics are definitely left-leaning. Uh, you've got upstate versus downstate. You've got the city right. versus the rest of the state, and you have these natural sort of us versus them. Mm -hmm. dynamics. And I think it does like, like everywhere else where you have that us versus them feeling, uh, it holds people back from expressing their real views or taking a chance, mm -hmm. taking a chance to open up and be part of the conversation, as you said, be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. um, what is this moral courage college <laughs> that you are operating? And what would you say to somebody who's, you know, a, let's say it really is one-sided. I don't, think our experience is that it is so one-sided, but say it was. Yeah. What would your advice be to somebody who's maybe in a minority viewpoint and who wants to say, hey, I think about this a little bit differently? Well, you kind of hit on it in a phrase that you used just moments ago. You said, take a chance. And I love that you use that phrase because the reality is it requires courage to uh, be um, perceived as the lone voice in a forest of, you know, um, of voices that are just speaking one truth. And this is why uh, what we teach at Moral Courage College is precisely 
how to turn contentious issues or even potentially contentious issues into constructive conversations and ultimately into healthy teamwork. And so back to the issue of skills. There are a number of you know, uh, uh, techniques that somebody who wants to speak up can use um, and can use those techniques in a really productive and healthy way. Because let's face it, very few of us relish being on the receiving end of blowback, right? Mm -hmm. Culture warriors love that. But I'm pleased to say that not everybody who has a, an unorthodox perspective wants to be a culture warrior. Uh, some of us actually wish to be culture healers, yeah. which means figuring out how to start and sustain conversations that are truly inclusive of different points of view and not just different demographics. And so, you know, it's, it, you don't have to wait for somebody else to make the first move, to invite you into a conversation. You can say, and this is one skill that we teach, you can literally be proactive in creating common ground. Now, I pay attention to words and I pay attention to the words that you use, Debbie. Notice that the word I used here is creating common mm. ground, not mm -hmm. seeking it, mm -hmm. finding it, mm -hmm. and you know, leaving it up to a measure of luck as to whether or not we stumble upon common ground. No, proactively creating common ground. First of all, why? Why should we do that? Because um, the reality is that we can't discuss any kind of differences constructively without some trust right away. And so creating common ground also uh, you know, is, uh, plants the seeds for trust. Okay, so with that in mind, if I knew or suspected, Debbie, that you and I disagreed on something, I could start off the conversation by saying, hey, Debbie, I, I, I'm guessing that we're probably gonna disagree about this, but I know something more. I know that you are so much bigger than just this one issue or just this one disagreement. Um, so, I can't legitimately judge who you are based on this one issue or this one agreement. Can you remember the same about me? That I'm also bigger than just this issue or this one uh, point of view? And when you ask a question like that, now let's analyze this. You're putting in some way the ball of accountability in the court of the other person. You're saying, I'm committing to a rule of engagement that will treat you with respect. Can I count on you to do the same for me? Okay, they have to answer in some way because you're asking the question. If they say, yeah, 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 okay. Then you move forward and you've just created a common rule of engagement that you can always come back to if they start getting you know, snippy and smarmy with you, right? Hey, hey, remember I'm, I'm bigger than just this one issue and so are you right? So please don't judge me based on this point of view. But better than that, if they say, if they're honest enough to say, mm, no, no, I, I'm, no, I'm not there. I, uh, thanks for not judging me, but no, I can't say the same, uh, you know, 
takes a lot of self-awareness to say that, right? Yeah. Or, or Or. it takes self-awareness or somebody who frankly doesn't want to Ah, commit themselves to respecting you, who just is so strident Mm -hmm. that no, they're not even going to do that. Mm -hmm. And you know that actually this is probably not going to be a conversation it'll wind up being a confrontation. And really, do you want to waste your time and your energy on that? Right now that takes self-awareness to say to yourself, right. To say to yourself, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. Is it to, is it to merely feel morally superior or is it to move the needle? And that's a choice. And if you choose to enter into this possible confrontation because you want to feel morally superior. Okay. That is absolutely your choice. You are free to choose, but understand that then you can't blame that other person for not changing their mind Yeah, because then you will have not, you know, um, sort of conducted yourself in a way that lowers their emotional defenses mm-hmm. and motivates them to hear where you're coming from. And by the way, the reason, you know, they're not, they, they, in this scenario that they're not going to be hearing you out is because they are not ready to hear you out. So why bother? Right now, again, Debbie, I want to be very, very clear. I'm not saying that the point of entering into potential disagreements is to change the other person's mind. Not at all. In fact, let me issue a warning here. If that really is your agenda to change their mind, you're setting yourself up for devastation. Because then you're going to be tempted to treat them like an object, a plaything for your own agenda. And guess what? Nobody likes to be played. And they will sniff it out. So this is, you just described both ends of what we said Mm -hmm. are true things right now in our country. The hyperpolarization is what you just described, where people are entering into conversations, not for conversations, but to win. Yeah, and the slam dunk the other. It's the motivation. The motivation is about my side winning, regardless of which side it is. Exactly. Versus, you know, why aren't we as divided as politicians and others? Some are are, are incentivized to to have us think we are, mm-hmm. because yeah, a lot of us are doing what you're describing, mm-hmm. and actually living our lives in a way where we know we have common common That's ground. Right. That's right. That's right. We're creating. But we it. don't. But we, and the, the, the reality, however, is that many more of us need to learn the skills, the skills. to create, not find, so, not seek, but create common ground. I mean, I'll share with you something that, uh, yeah, there is a skills aspect to this, right? So mm-hmm. say with the, the moral courage, taking a chance, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know I had this period where, whoosh, I was silent, just whew, be very much silent. And then you go through this period of, okay, I'm going to take a chance, right? And I'm not going to be silent. I'm going to take a chance. Mm-hmm. But what can happen, at least it did with me, is uh, you when you take that chance, you come out so strong because you've been, yeah, yeah. you're taking a chance. And well, you're right. really trying you know, to take you, a chance. You need to be bold, right? Yes. yes. And that will what? Backfire. Backfire. So how do you, I mean, is there a skill and, and you don't have to give us all your trade secrets so people should take your class. But it is, um, how do you get over that sort of, I'm going to take a chance. Yeah. 
but I'm going to do a chance in a way that I manage my emotions around. Good. So glad you asked. That's a brilliant question, Debbie. This is where we get to what moral courage means. Okay. Now, in popular culture, moral courage is defined as speaking truth to power. That is way too simplistic because how you speak truth to power will very much determine whether it lands properly. So this is where we need to understand something. All of us, regardless of our identities, all of us are born with a brain that has a primitive region. And that primitive region gives rise to the ego. Now, I don't mean the word ego in a self-helpy or mystical sense. I mean it as the biological function. The ego exists, Debbie, to keep us alive. And it does that by detecting threat five times every second. Can I just say that again? That's a lot. The ego brain, exactly, is detecting threat five times per second. And it's detecting even more threat today in an us against them culture, where we now take different points of view as a threat to our own existence or humanity, right? So rather than merely speaking truth to power, moral courage today means speaking truth to the power of my ego brain, even as I am speaking truth to power out there. And if I can remind myself, which I'm really reminding my ego, I love you, ego. I respect you. You exist to keep me alive, but you will keep me alive in a moment of mortal danger. This is not such a moment. I'm not feeling mortal danger. I'm only feeling mere discomfort. So ego, I will not allow you to bully or manipulate me into becoming more defensive and therefore dogmatic than I actually need to be. That is the definition of moral courage. And that is a much tougher kind of courage to exercise than the kind that says to the other, screw you, I'm gonna you know, speak truth to power and you're the power and I've got the truth. The ego loves that. That kind of courage, quote unquote, is lazy. It requires no self-discipline. And in speaking that kind of truth to that kind of power, you can then scurry back under the tent of your tribe and beat your metaphorical chest and say, see, see folks, see how I'm standing up for us against them. And they'll all love and applaud you. And what the hell is so brave about that? Oh, that is such a very, very enlightening answer that takes, I had these images flashing into my mind of some of our politicians in DC today. Mm-hmm. And these images are all over our news. And what you just described are the images that we are seeing. Cool. Um, so these are the people who have the power mm-hmm. and who are also yelling truth to power, allegedly, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and standing up for what they believe in, but they are actually making things much, much worse. And yeah. It's, and it's not and about I want truth. To be, it's only about well, power. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Ultimately, it is about power. And, you know, we say, well, they're standing up for what they believe in. Again, I need to be really, really emphatic about this. 
It's good to stand up for what you believe in. The question is, how are you standing up for what you believe in? Are you standing up by pointing fingers at the other? In which case, okay, you know, you're going to make a statement, but you sure as hell are not going to make an impact. Well, this is why I wanted to have you on because I think, you know, the skills that you're talking about are skills that we don't get taught um, when we're young and we actually need to seek them out if we want, if we want to improve our relationships, our communications, our ability to collaboratively, collaboratively problem solve um, and be part of the the solution, right? And it doesn't matter where you live in the country. These are skills that um, we need if we want to move things forward. So, And that's if, isn't it? That's if. Because one of the things I've learned over the years, Debbie, is that people who attach themselves to movements, regardless of what those movements are, sometimes do so not to solve the problem that they claim to oppose, but to find an identity that is easy peasy. Even if you don't know who you are, clinging to the movement of your choice at least tells you, I'm not them. And that's enough for me. And so rather than solving the problem, which would then raise the question, well, who am I now? You're in it to prolong the problem. Because that's what gives you purpose. That's what lights the fire in your belly. That's your identity. Uh, well, every time I talk to you, I'm reminded that during one of our conversations, we came to the conclusions that we were uh, independent misfits. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and probably so in my case anyway. Oh my gosh. Yeah, completely. Right. <laughs> just, but every time I speak to you, I'm reminded about why that is, even though I don't consciously, you know, think of sure. it that way, but yeah. Um, Urshad, where do people go to find out more about your course? Please come to moralcourage.com. Uh, the, the, um, the agency, uh, that is called Moral Courage College, um, serves businesses, higher ed and K to 12 schools. And I'm pleased to say that we do a lot of work with K to 12 schools, uh, right here in New York. Um, and we look forward to doing more. That's awesome. Well, it is time to actually drink our chai. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. But great to have you. Cheers. Great to have you on. And oh, Lanakai from your Hawaii yeah, days. I from see, Hawaii. That's right. That's right. right. <laughs> um, great to have you on and always wonderful to speak with you, Rashad. Debbie, thank you. Till next time. Till next time. Hi, my name is Kyle Davis, and I'm the Director of Public Affairs at the Empire Center, and I have the privilege of sitting down with James Hanley today, Energy Fellow at the Empire Center, to discuss some interesting energy policy. How are you doing today, James? I'm good, Kyle. How are you? Good. So the New York State Independent System Operator put out an interesting report about a week ago uh, detailing some Concerning things going on with the electrical grid or what could be down in the road in terms of um, electricity in New York, why don't you go in and tell us a little bit about what uh, NISO is and what NISO does? All right. Uh, NISO, the New York Independent System Operator, is actually a nonprofit uh, company, and it is responsible for managing the electrical grid in New York. It uh, holds the auctions for uh, electricity that, uh, where the transmission companies buy it from the independent power producers. And it's responsible for making sure that the load uh, uh, is balanced at all times. And if power goes out somewhere along the way, making sure its uh, power is rerouted from other areas to try to avoid blackouts. 
And as part of that, they do regular planning and forecasting uh, for the near-term and long-term future of the electrical supply in New York and demand. So James, recently NISO put out its STAR report, which is its short-term assessment and reliability report. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about what some of the concerns were that came out of that report? Well, the biggest concern is about the supply of uh, electricity in New York City area, which has been on their radar for uh, several years now. And uh, they've been warning that the what they call the reliability margins, uh, the, the amount of available electricity in relation to the demand for it, have been diminishing. Uh, they've been warning that the, the margins are getting too thin to be to be safe. This time they actually said, by summer of 2025, there simply may not be enough electricity to meet demand. Um, so that's the most dire warning they've given yet. And that's assuming normal summer weather. Uh, it gets even worse if there is a heat wave. So what are some of the underlying events that are taking place that are leading to this kind of energy emergency? Are there certain policies or policy directions that New York State or State is heading in that poses a problem for specifically uh, the New York City electricity supply? Yes, uh, New York has policies that are going in opposite directions. Uh, one policy is we want to electrify everything uh, so that we uh, aren't using as much fossil fuels. So we're planning to electrify buildings and electrify transportation. All of that creates more demand on the electrical system, right? If you're driving a gas guzzling car, uh, that has its environmental downsides, but it's not a drain on the electrical grid. Whereas if you get a nice, clean electrical car, electric vehicle, uh, it's better for the environment, but you have to plug it in and then you're draining power from the electrical grid. So as we are increasing our demand for electricity, we are unfortunately at the same time reducing our supply of it. Uh, the first big action was to shut down the Indian Point nuclear power plant, which took about 2000 uh, megawatts of power away from New York City, which is a large amount. And the next step is that uh, this, this year, the first round of shutdowns of natural gas peaker plants came into effect because of the uh, Department of Environmental Conservation's peaker rule, which is shutting down power plants that can't meet certain uh, standards for nitrous oxide emissions. And in 2025, the second round of those uh, shutdowns is going to take effect. And the independent system operator is predicting that enough power plants will be shut down because they can't meet that peaker rule that there will not be enough electricity supply for New York. So James, can you just give a little bit more background if you're able to on what is a peaker plant? Some folks may not be aware of what sure. that is. Yep, the peaker plant is just a uh, regular natural gas power plant, but it's only turned on once in a while instead of running all the time because uh, the demand for electricity uh, fluctuates throughout the day. Uh, it goes up in the morning when everybody wakes up and starts getting ready for the day. So they turn on extra power at that time. And then in the middle of the day, not as much power is demanded. So they turn those power plants off to save money. Uh, and, you know, saves consumers money too, because we're not paying for those plants to operate. And then later in the day, when we get our highest daily peak, when everybody goes home from work, uh, they turn some of the peaker plants back on again. Some of these peaker plants are rarely used uh, because they only are needed during severe weather. 
during the coldest weather when everybody's cranking up electric heat and so on, um, and particularly during uh, heat waves and everybody's cranking up the air conditioner, uh, cooling centers are turning up the air conditioners and so on, and demand skyrockets and you just need extra supply. So some of these pico plants actually only run a few hours per year. And they do tend to be the oldest, least efficient ones uh, because those obviously are the ones you wanna run least often, only when necessary. And James, from my understanding, there could have been upgrades to these peaker plants to make them more, uh, you know, better for the environment, more cost effective. But New York State hasn't pursued that direction. Do you do you know why that is? Yeah, at least some of them, uh, the owners uh, proposed to upgrade them uh, by taking out the older uh, types of turbines that were in them and replacing them with newer, more efficient uh, uh, burning turbines. And they were blocked from doing that by the Department of Environmental Conservation because the DEC just wants to shut down the power plants. Because with the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, over the long term, the goal is to get rid of all natural gas power production. Uh, so they didn't want to encourage any even for the, uh, for the midterm while we're trying to get to that uh, COCPA goal. So it seems to me, James, that 2025 is kind of a uh, an interesting year because you have more demand going onto the grid. You have stuff coming off the grid, and then certain energy projects wouldn't be complete that would bring additional power onto the grid. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Champlain-Hudson um, Power Express? Sure. There are actually several um, future uh, power supply sources that are being developed. Um, there, there is an onshore wind project uh, or a group of projects that are called Clean Path that would be bringing power from upstate to da down to the New York City area. They're also starting to develop offshore wind power, which will bring power to New York City area. Um, the problem with both those wind projects is uh, the wind is very variable, so they're not really reliable energy. So you can't be sure of having enough electricity at any one time. And then the big one they're counting on that is supposed to come online in 2026 and, and put a, uh, New York back on the positive side for power, but still with a really thin reliability margin is, as you mentioned, the Champlain-Hudson Power Express, which is bringing power down from uh, Quebec, hydropower from Quebec. Uh, most of the line will be uh, down the Hudson River and... Uh, uh, It'll provide about 1,200 megawatts, which isn't enough to make up for the loss of Indian Point Nuclear Center. And when it was originally proposed, nobody was talking about shutting down Indian Point. It was supposed to be 1,200 watts on top of that 2,000 uh, megawatts on top of that um, 2,000 megawatts from Indian Point. And uh, even with that, then with the shutdown of Indian Point, we end up with uh, an 800 megawatt loss of uh, net power. So with all these changes going on in the energy space, what do you anticipate happening over the next couple of years? What do you see the fallout being from this NISO report? Um, I hope there's a fallout from it. I hope people pay attention to it. Uh, the NISO has been trying uh, in its quiet bureaucratic way to sound the alarm bell for a while. And uh, frankly, New York regulators don't seem to be taking them seriously. Uh, it's all COCPA, Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, all the time. Uh, nothing allowed to get in the way of that. But what's going to get in the way of that is when we, if we actually have blackouts, 
Um, and then people are going to start to get really upset. And at first, they're going to blame the power companies, but maybe eventually they'll begin to realize it's not the power company's fault, it's the, it's the policies. Uh, what might prevent uh, that kind of crisis from happening is the federal regulators. The Federal uh, Energy Regulatory Commission has the authority to step in and say, sorry, forget about your PICA rule. You cannot shut down these natural gas plants because they are critical to ensuring that there is supply when it's needed. So you anticipate the federal government stepping in. I, I believe NISO also has some authority to stop some of the stuff to make sure that the lights are kept on. But there is a there is a possibility where you hit very high peak demand during those summer hours that they wouldn't have those those power sources in place in order to call on them. Yeah, NISO has a pretty limited authority because it's not a part of the government. It is a private not-for-profit company. Um, whereas the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is part of the federal government. Um, and so they they have some high-level authority to step in and say, uh, you're being crazy. Uh, you're putting people's lives at risk literally from blackouts. So we're going to uh, hold off on shutting down these power plants until such time as you have reliable re replacement. I, I would assume, I don't know for sure that's going to happen. I would assume they will because uh, the situation is getting so dire. James, before we go, are there any final thoughts you want to leave our audience with uh, on the energy front? Um, yeah, New York really needs to get a little bit more sensible about the way it's approaching its uh, long-term uh, goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Um, the you know the, this is being driven by the goal of reducing. Um, uh, emissions of greenhouse gases economy-wide in the state by 85% uh, by the year 2050. And so a big part of that is transitioning our power to cleaner sources of energy. And most people don't disagree with that goal, but the question is, how do you approach it? And right now we're approaching it by shutting down reliable sources of power before we replace them with other reliable sources of power. And we need just to reverse that policy. We need to get the reliable power in place first before we shut down other reliable sources. That way we can guarantee that when people uh, crank up the air conditioner on a sizzling summer day um, or turn up their electric heat on a frigid February day, that they will have the power they need to stay safe and comfortable. Absolutely, James. I think you hit on a key point that energy should be reliable and energy should be affordable. And uh, we hope New York State, you know, moves moves in a direction where that is more of a priority. So I'd like to thank you for, for sitting down and having this conversation with me. And I'd like to thank our audience for tuning into this segment. And we look forward to uh, speaking with you next time. All right. Thank you, Kyle. For more news and analysis, visit our website and sign up for email updates at empirecenter.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Empire Center.